So good evening, Emmaus Way. It's a lovely fall evening. It was really cool in this room when we got here, and it doesn't seem that cool anymore. So I don't know. At some point, we may have to turn the air on. In any case, we're here this evening, sort of on the tail end of a fall series where we're talking about our minister's liturgy and fear. And their vow this week that we're talking about, which is kind of like the last one in that liturgy, focuses really directly on our open table. And so we thought this call to gather tonight would be really appropriate. It's from our often friend, Jan Richardson, a very, very fine liturgist. And the table will be wide and the welcome will be wide, and the arms will open wide to gather us in, and our hearts will open wide to receive, and we will come as children who trust there is enough, and we will come unhindered and free, and our aching will be met with bread, and our sorrow will be met with wine, and we will open our hands to the feast without shame, and we will turn toward each other without fear, and we will give up our appetite for despair, and we will taste and know of delight, and we will become bread for a hungering world. We will become drink for those who thirst, and the blessed will become the blessing, and everywhere will be the feast. Amen. So, welcome again. One of the things that we're doing this evening, um, as we do sometimes, I guess is the thing churches do in the fall, is to sort of celebrate the... Uh, I don't know, promotion is the wrong word, but the sort of rite of passage from one classroom in our children's ministry to another of a particular young person um, in our Emmaus Way midst. And so I'm going to invite Elizabeth Eford up, who's our kind of children's coordinator for our community, to sort of lead us in that. Yeah, so tonight we're celebrating Asa is in kindergarten. He's moving from the from the younger groups into our older elementary school group. And Asa, as the people of Emmaus Way, we try to be alert to what God is doing, and we try to take part in it. And as we try to seek God's kingdom and look for ways we can participate with God, one of the things we do is read the Bible together and talk about it together. And this Bible is a gift from your Emmaus Way community. Your being here and your ideas are important to us. And we hope that we can encourage you and challenge you as we move together. Fantastic. And so, yeah, to continue this little kids portion of the evening, Rhody's going to, and the kids, yeah, lead us in our community song. Kids and you, we have actually finally met up. You were talking about the same vow. Yeah, we've been 
exactly. We've been trading vows between the kids and what we're talking about. But this week we're all talking about the same one. And so yeah, go, go upstairs. And they're making bread tonight as they talk about our open table. And so yeah, if you would just rather go make bread with Rhodey. Yeah, I would have some extra hand. There you go. So, announcement-wise, things happening. I have not consulted with Molly, but I'm looking at her, so she, hopefully she will say something. good things about being here is all the other great people that use this space. Uh, and Calvary UMC people are great, but Rose has actually been a really great friend to us since being here. And yeah, it's just good to see them and others in the building, yeah, through the week that are doing good things and good work. So yeah. Um, anything else announcement wise? If you're relatively new to this community or still like trying to figure out ways that you could get more engaged in a mass way, there's always information over on that table by the, the whatever your side of the right or left of the door over there uh, with some green cards with contact information and the yellow cards where you could give us your contact information. And 
yeah, to sort of like push ahead into the night a bit, this conversation we've been having about our minister's liturgy and even, even the words Elizabeth shared with Asa, the idea that your presence here matters and your voice here matters and that we think different presences and different voices fundamentally change who we are. Um, that's, that's really what we've been sort of digging into uh, over this last six weeks or so. And in coming to this table vow tonight, um, the idea that we shape our life together around the radical hospitality reflected in our open table. Um, yeah, I've been glad to have Tim Carlos's voice sort of uh, to help guide us into that tonight. And I think that in these first three songs, I would ask you to think about spaces. We look at our table as a radical space that invites us in uh, to a sort of different way of thinking or a different way of being, or maybe juxtaposes um, some of our ideas of in and out, um, of welcome and unwelcome. And I think that, yeah, through these several songs and really a lot of tonight, that's, that's kind of what we're looking at. So yeah, Tim, would you please come up and take us further in. Good evening, everybody, as ever. It's a pleasure to be here. For some of you, this the first song needs no introduction as it's been played many times here at Igwe. And if it's new to you, I hope you enjoy it. It's a Nick Lowe song. It's a, um, not quite an anthem, but uh, certainly a song for the outsider. There's a cool wind blowing in the sound of happy Thank you. 
So that was an Igalow song. So next up is a song that I don't think anybody's um, offered here before. It's a song uh, called Mohammed's Radio from the late Warren Zevon. And nobody seems to know actually what it's about. So I, I, I offered it a while ago. My perception of it is that Mohammed is a cab driver in Los Angeles. And it's his radio that's, uh, that he's listening to. And it, it's, his, it's the song of the, out, of the outsider and the downtrodden. But it, it might not be about that either. Are there any Warren Zevon fans here this evening? No. Over time, I found that people either don't know who Warren Zevon is or they're fanatical. And so. Everybody's restless, they've got no place to go. Someone's always trying to tell them something they already know. So their anger and resentment grows, and don't it make you wanna rock and roll all night long? Heard somebody singing sweet and so on Mohammed's on Mohammed's radio. You know the sheriff, he has his problems too. He'll surely try to take them out on you. And walk the village idiot His face was all aglow He'd been up all night Listening to my Hamid's radio And don't it make you Wanna rock and roll All night long On my Hamid's radio I've heard somebody
somebody singing sweet and soulful on the radio, Mohammed's radio. You've been up all night listening to his drum, hoping that the righteous might just, might just come. I heard the general to his aide to camp Just be watchful of Mohammed and his lamp And he said, don't you think you want to rock and roll All night long on Mohammed's radio I heard somebody singing sweet on the radio, Mohammed's radio. Don't it make you wanna rock and roll all night long on Mohammed's radio? I heard somebody singing sweet so song before handing over the proceedings. It's a song from the Plastic Ono band album. It's called Love.
Tim and for your really thoughtful songs of preparation that get us thinking about what it means to be a community that centers itself around our open table. Um, Before we pass the piece though, I wanted to give kind of two quick sort of pastoral care updates. Um, I know a few weeks ago we prayed for the Nagleys and the Williams. Um, Lindsay Nagley, Lindsay will go to Philadelphia a week from Monday for a second opinion on the tumor on her retina. So we will be praying for them as Lindsay heads up there with a friend. Caleb will stay with Desmond, but we pray that that second opinion, apparently this is, I think the Duke guy is like the number two ocular um, oncologist, and they're headed to go see the number one ocular oncologist. But Caleb asks that we continue to keep them in prayer. And Mark and Katrina um, Soren is... They do have a diagnosis. Um, He has something known as CGD, chronic granuloma disease. Um, And so he is currently in the hospital. He'll be there for about a week for them to fight off this infection. Um, They would love visitors. Um, It's going to be a long journey. Um, But just text them um, before you go and kind of make sure that it's a good time. But they would especially, I think it's probably hard keeping a 12-month-old content in a hospital. Um, So they would love visitors. So you can send them a text message to ask if it's a good time, but continue to keep them in prayer too. Wanted to let you know about both of those, um, but now pass the peace of Christ. Say hello to someone maybe you haven't seen in a while or met before. Grab some food and we will come back in just a few moments. So tonight, is more of a homily um, with the dialogue on the back half, just sort of heads up. Um, A bit more similar to how we did it kind of during our sanctuary series back in January. Um, Perhaps if you don't like this way, um, you can either blame my divinity school students who I'm teaching preaching to in their really inspiring week of (coughs) preaching, um, or maybe we can blame the spirit. I don't know. <laughs> I tried to like restructure this multiple times in ways with questions throughout and dialogue throughout, and it just, it would have been a train wreck. So here we are. All right. So over the past weeks, um, we've looked at five of the six vows in our minister's liturgy. You can see all of the vows printed in your bulletin. This liturgy is our right of belonging. The thing we claim as we promise to be co-ministers in this community. And as we've journeyed, we've kept this question in the forefront of our imagination for the vows. How might we live into them if we were not afraid? And tonight we're looking at the sixth. Perhaps in some ways the most audacious. But before we get there, let's remember where we've been, all right? So we began, our minister's liturgy begins to imitate Christ in thought, word, deed, and affection. 
And then we traveled through conversation about how we might embody the fostering of proximity and mutuality among our fellow ministers, seeking beauty and abundance and the diversity of God's kingdom in our midst, and how we might pursue simplicity and sustainability in our relationships to time, resources, and environment. Last week, we turned toward the practice and discussed what it means to cultivate a communal life centered in practices of prayer, intentional conversation, spiritual discernment, dialogical study of scripture, and creative liturgy, as well as to come alongside God's redemptive work in Durham as partners and participants in the embodied justice of beloved community. And tonight, all of these conversations culminate in our last vow to shape our life together around the radical hospitality of our open table. But what really does it mean to shape our life together around the radical hospitality of our open table? When, as Emily, for those of you that were here last week, so honestly reminded us, living into these vows isn't simple. Being a kingdom people isn't easy work especially when it is far easier for fear to overwhelm us when we see the news of the war of words between the United States and North Korea. Nor is it easy to be a kingdom people when we see the recurring devastation of Caribbean islands by storms in the country of Mexico by earthquakes and know there can be no rest until water, food, and shelter are provided and the lost are found. It seems almost impossible to live into these vows when our country fails to recognize that freedom of speech means all persons within our country can use it. As well as when we read stories of ICE detaining parents of a child during his surgery while in hospital. Or when we read in Harold's Sun that the 19th homicide this week happened in Durham as one woman lost her life at the age of 36 due to a drive-by shooting, or even when in this very community, unexplainable, unexpected illness seems to permeate our lives. With these realities, it's hard to think or imagine that ushering in beloved community alongside God is even possible, for there is so much to lament and feel heavy laden by. And we honestly wonderful, wonder, at least I do, if it's even probable to be a people of these vows, embodying fierce hope, love, and light in a world that so often feels too dark. But Leonard Cohen reminds us, pretty regularly actually within this worship gathering, that the, there is a crack in everything, yes but that's how the light gets in. in. As people captivated by the gospel, the light that gets through the cracks of this world is most clearly seen through Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection, which we remember and are transformed by week after week through our open table, the very open table we vow to be shaped by. And it is the same open table that permeates today's text So I would love it if someone would read verses 13 through 18 and then 28 through 35. Two people can do it, one person can. 13 through 18, then 28 through 35. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. 
and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? Verse 28. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it's almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened. And they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road. And how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Thanks so much, Elizabeth. And Brett. Of the walk to Emmaus, one theologian notes, Emmaus is the place we go to in order to escape. A bar, a movie, wherever it is, we throw up our hands and say, let the whole damn thing go hang. It makes no difference anyway. Emmaus may be buying a new suit or a new car or soothing more than you really want or reading a second-rate novel or even writing one. Emmaus may be going to church on Sunday. Emmaus is whatever we do or wherever we go to make ourselves forget that the world holds nothing sacred, that even the wisest and bravest and loveliest things decay and die, that even the noblest ideas that humanity has had Ideas about love and freedom and justice have always in time been twisted out of shape by selfish persons for selfish ends. And yet, it is into these very places, in the Emmauses of our lives, that a stranger saw the cracks of despair and chose to enter into conversation with two along the way. And that same stranger understood despair most deeply. And so he took bread, blessed, and broke it. And in so doing, the light got in. Frederick Buechner says this, I believe that because Jesus sees, not even in the darkness of death are we lost to him or lost to each other. I believe that whether we recognize him or not, or believe in him or not, or even know his name, again and again he comes and walks a little way with us along whatever road we're following, and he offers us the way he did at Emmaus, the bread of life, offers us a new hope, a new vision of light that not even the dark world can overcome. This text reveals to us that even in the darkest moments of despair or the deepest moments of our boredom, fear, and complacency, resurrection realities still permeate our lives and our world through everyday encounters. 
Everyday encounters are really what this text reveals. For the meal at Emmaus does not mean that Jesus celebrated the Eucharist there and only there, but that every table that we gather around has the potential of being an event in which hospitality and fellowship become sacred occasions of open table resurrection abundance. Every breaking of bread has the potential to be a moment of offering us new hope, a new vision of light that not even the dark world can overcome. When thinking about, um, I guess what a lot of churches would call James and our our call weekend here, I don't really know what we called it or what y'all called it, but when thinking about kind of our call Sunday, call 48 hours um, at Emmaus Way, I remember two things most vividly about that Sunday night gathering. I remember Mark commenting that on this day after July 4th, we were going to sing This Land is Your Land, but we'd sing all the verses, making it a point that we are a church that sings all the verses of that song. And I remember the open table. Not what I said, because I think I was probably scared shitless (laughs) giving the invitation to the open table. But I remember the community coming around this table that you all created, breaking bread and pouring wine, recognizing within that very worship gathering all the complexities and darkness of our world, and yet coming around the table anyway, serving one another, and being moved that you all did this week after week believing and knowing that through the breaking of bread and the pouring of wine or juice for one another, you were proclaiming there is a crack in everything, but that's how the light gets in. And this breaking of bread is our light. Those two things were so vivid to me and to James that that night when we were headed to sleep, James leans over and says, hey, love, I think these might be our people. And I breathe a deep sigh of agreement, because it's really nice when your spouse likes a church where you feel called, and said, yeah, they don't erase the hard stuff. They hold hard realities simultaneously with the power of love and light and hospitality in the world because of this very open table they root themselves in. And I paused, and I think I was probably crying at this point, and said, these most definitely are our people. And if you're wondering, yes, our pillow talk conversations are always that articulate. (laughs) Um, But that moment has stuck with us from the very beginning. For me, this community, through both liturgy and the open table that night and in the countless nights and days since, embodies Jürgen Moltmann's assertion that believing in the resurrection does not just mean assenting to a dogma and noting a historical fact. It means participating in this creative act of God's. Resurrection is not a consoling opium, soothing us with the promise of a better world in the hereafter. It is the energy for a rebirth of this life. 
The hope doesn't point to another world. It is focused on the redemption of this one from where it is. And for those of us who claim Emmaus Way, that starting point, that centering of the resurrection manifests in the coming around of the open table, in the breaking of bread and in the pouring of wine, of wine, and living into the radical hospitality found in the transforming power we each experience and come to better recognize week after week. Now, some of you might be thinking, Molly, that's nice and all. Emmaus way, this Emmaus text as revelation of the open table, as the place where light of the resurrection most fully illumines through the breaking of bread and radical hospitality found there. Ensure that action gives us strength to go into the world to be about the kingdom, beloved community alongside God. But really, this is just nice theological rhetoric. This is much harder to do when we leave this place, when we turn on the news and so quickly become overwhelmed by 45, when binging on Netflix seems much easier than going out to a political action or a prayer vigil for someone murdered, when our comfortable houses cause us to pause and think maybe the economics of our world should be flipped, but not totally flipped on its head, when passing a fellow struggling pilgrim on the side of the road causes such discomfort within us that we quickly look down so as to assuage our guilt. And it's especially hard when we get into a heated argument with a family member or a friend or a coworker about really any issue this day and think this is a lost cause. They disagree with me. We aren't going to see eye to eye it's probably easier to just forget it, not engage, and wall off relationship. We aren't Jesus after all, Molly. We aren't necessarily the light in the cracks of our world. But aren't we? Process theologian Monica Coleman remarks, we can do the things we see as exceptional about Jesus. We can forgive, seek ideas in our communities, stand up for justice, welcome the ostracized, see life overpower death, and pursue healing for the world. Why? Because Jesus' humanity, she says, is encouraging. It means that someone who has had skin on, has breathed, has walked this world just like us, was admired, respected, and uplifted, was human just like us. Therefore, we can do the hard things of Jesus. And I believe, I really, really do, that it was and is out of Jesus' humanness, his lived experience of life on this world, that he recognized we needed a very human act. Coming around the table, breaking bread, eating together to sustain us and remind us of our call as a people captivated by the gospel. To be about the kingdom in a world where resurre resurrection hope too often feels like a distant dream, but recognizing that resurrection hope will have the last word. Jesus knew, 
I'm confident of this. That imitating Christ in thought, word, deed, and affection, fostering proximity and mutuality, seeking beauty and abundance in the diversity of God's kingdom, pursuing simplicity and sustainability in our relationship to time, resources, and environment, cultivating a communal life centered in practices of prayer, intentional conversation, spiritual discernment, dialogical study of scripture and creative liturgy, and coming alongside God's redemptive work as partner and participants in the embodied justice of beloved community would not be easy nor is it easy to say. If anything, it might feel overwhelming and impossible more days than not. And so that's why in Emmaus, he revealed to us who he was and reminded us of the power found at an open table in simple acts, in sustenance of bread and wine, in transformative encounters with one another and with God. And those things that happen there don't just stay there, but go with us as we try more and more each day to live more fully as a community captivated by the gospel rather than being a community captivated by fear. A people who vow to be about some pretty audacious, scandalous kingdom things. So what might it look like if we lived into the sixth vow more fully? Maybe it means truly believing that the table will be wide and the welcome will be wide and the arms will open wide to gather us in and our hearts will open wide to receive and we will come as children who trust there is enough and we will come unhindered and free, and our aching will be met with bread, and our sorrow will be met with wine, and we will open our hands to the feast without shame, and we will turn toward each other without fear, and we will give up our appetite for despair, and we will taste and know of delight and we will become bread for a hungering world, and we will become drink for those who thirst, and the blessed will become the blessing, and everywhere will be the feast. But I want to hear from you. What might it look like if we lived into this sixth vow more fully? What might it look like if we didn't live in fear of the cracks of our world, but recognize them as place where the light gets in, the light of our abundant open table? Or you can disagree with anything I just said, and we can do it that way too. But yeah, what might it look like if we lived into the sixth out more fully? If we saw our open table as this powerful resurrection hope that cuts through all darkness in our world?
I'd like to point out something that's going on in Pub Group that I think is really, um, it's really revelatory and good, in my, in my opinion. And we're reading this book about um, these different moral spectrums that people have. We're reading a book that posits that there's five different spectrums. And what it's done, especially in some of the conversations we've had already, is to open up um, our hearts to a new, new possibilities in dialogue with people who have um, opposing views. And the realization that um, we're not using the same language, and, but that there is validity on the other side of the table. It's just not the things that we value. It's, it's something else. And in a conversation on Thursday, it came up that uh, maybe there's a new strategy, which is just to be in relationship with people and be kind, and how that that relationship um, breathes life into. I mean, I'm losing my train of thought here. Um, basically, the book posits that. Moral decisions are made using intuition instead of using reason. And so all these attempts to like argue with someone and give them reasons why they're wrong, it actually doesn't work. And reason, moral reasoning doesn't work that way. What actually happens is it's a, it's a form of intuition that makes it moral judgment, and then your reason justifies it. And um, a lot of intuition is formed through social relationships. And so the reality is that if we build relationships with people, we can change their moral reasoning. We might not be able to use their, we might not be able to use our, our, our good reasons why we're right, but we can use our friendship and our kindness to change the moral fabric of our country. And that seemed really hopeful for me, but it also seems hard to get into deep relationship with people that, whose views we find repulsive or whose views we find um, just nonsensical, but it seems like a way forward, so. Very much so. I think that's beautiful, Brian. This reminds me of um, when I was finishing diff school and my mentor um, told me, hey, Mal, I think you really don't need to go to this poor church in New York City. I think you need to learn how to be around table with wealthy folks and learn to love them even if they vote differently than you, live in different parts of the town than you, et cetera. And I was so mad, right? I said, no, that's not the gospel. But I went and I served a really wealthy church. It was the first time I think I saw a lot of people as human that I had completely, right, kind of cut off. Because we shared meals around table and they became friends. And yeah, maybe some of that moral reasoning through friendship started to change. And one of them even reached out to me to let me know that they did not vote for Trump. <laughs> so I think, you know, maybe, just maybe, there is hope, right? That we just have to go, I think, right, to these places where we don't really want. Thanks for that, Brian. Others. What might it look like for us to really live into the sixth vow in this community, in our lives, in our world?
to really believe in it, right? Like to not only live it, but to really believe in this sixth vow of our minister's liturgy. What might that look like? Um, I'm an English major, and so words are like really important to me, particularly. And I, I'm caught by the uh, the radical for hospitality, and I think that for me, a lot of times, um, being hospitable or showing hospitality is not necessarily um, something that I have an issue with. It's, it's almost something that, of course, I should be um, hospitable to people and kind to people. But what does radical kindness look like? And I think that. For me, it looks um, uncomfortable, mm -hmm. and uh, so that's something that I feel like on a practical level is showing hospitality and showing kindness um, in an area with people um, that might make me uncomfortable. Thanks for that. Yeah. That hospitality doesn't, um, there's a great quote, um, I'm forgetting the name, but it says, whenever hospitality, right, kind of Whenever we're feeling great every time we're extending hospitality and feeling comfortable and good about it, we're doing it the wrong way, basically, right? That um, hospitality isn't always about comfort. So thanks for that, Matt. Others? Well, I would disagree with that. Okay. Hospitality can be comfortable. Very much so. Very much so. Right. But, why was, when you first asked the question, I was thinking, for me, hospitality means I have to look up, you know. Like it's the what Brian is saying, you need to look at you need to build a relationship and know someone to get past. You know, I've got this wall around me of where I'm moving so fast. Usually I have to look out from where that is and moving so fast. So I think it would be very comfortable, but the discomfort would be um, or the comfort we can grow, you know, so mm -hmm. real hospitality is the point where you are affected. So I just held this and it was the best thing that happened today. Jimmy's probably really laughing and he's like, something. For me, it was the best thing that's happened all day. an openness, right, kind of to receive whatever may come. And I think that that's really poignant, too, for our table, right, even as we come around the open table and not, what are we open to receiving there, right, that might be uncomfortable, that might surprise us, that might be, we didn't even recognize that we needed it, um, but we show up and we came and um, we received and were moved. So yeah, thanks for that, Susan. Others, how might we live into the sixth vow more fully? 
Yeah, Joel. So I'm struck by how, like if I look at this list and it's, you know, it's six different vows, right? Yeah. But yeah. really this last one is, is a summation of all of them, isn't it? Very, yeah. And so, it like that. Yeah. so you know, just, just read, read above it, you see how we do this, you know, mm -hmm. cultivate communal life, come together and do the work that we do in, the, in, our, you know, mm -hmm. in our greater community, pursue simplicity, foster proximity and mutuality among, among each other, you know, and so, so we, we've, we need to think about all these things sort of mutually supporting each other, and so like, we don't have to like think, oh, well, you know, what does radical hospitality really mean, or, you know, like, mm -hmm. I mean, not, not that it's a bad thing to like dive deep into thinking about what all this stuff means, but like, we have all these other ways that we've already mm -hmm. talked about for, for, you know, six mm -hmm. weeks or whatever. Yeah. Um, that I think really is, is a way to live into this. As I was like writing this or sort of thinking about it, it um, sort of like the other five vows, it's like the roadmap, right? It's sort of like, this is the roadmap, this is how we're doing it, this is what we're committing to. And I think for me at that like crux of this sixth vow really rest, um, okay, you know how to do it, are you gonna believe it, right? Are you gonna like believe that this that this matters and is good and um, this is a way to live and be? Um, and I think needing that um, there's something about coming around the open table weekly that is sort of like a re a reminder for us I think to remember the roadmap or to remember these things we've and covenant, like vowing to be about, to remember that we really can do this, we're doing this together. Um, so yeah, I think, thanks for that, Joel, because I do think, I mean, heck, we've, a lot of people have spent a lot of time crafting, right, <laughs> these words in this language and um, the weight behind what they mean. So I agree. Yeah, Jim. So our home group, um, demonstrates hospitality to Gail and me in our own house. Mm -hmm. Even though we're hosting, yeah. I feel like the hospitality is from them. Because we live in Carborough. It's a hike. It is, <laughs> yes. It's a hike. And, and we're proximity challenged mm -hmm. with this community. But when we first approached them about being a part of that group, they said, we will come to Carborough once a month mm -hmm. and um, fold you into our group. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I'm building off of what was just said about how this proximity yeah. thing is, is part of this hospitality. Very much so. Um, that's something, just a real practical way that Gail and I have experienced it. Very much so. Thanks so much, Jim. Others. What does it look like to like live into the sixth vow, but to like live into these vows? Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm not good at swaying. Like, yeah. I'm not, yeah, I have no rhythm somewhere. I know, right? And then Kyle. Okay, I'm just going to turn this way and stay here for a while. Um, I think for me, I would really, um, I am learning recently how to
for me, it looks like not becoming calloused um, and not being jaded to the fact that what's very tangible in front of me is more powerful than I'll ever be. Thanks for that, Summer. What's more? table is our greatest technology to restore the things we're longing for. Yeah, and I think, right, we see that. I find it, um, a friend of mine started something called the dinner party, um, and it was for people of grief to come together. They may not know one another, but shared experience and coming around table, and then out of that was the offshoot of um, people's dinners in this post-election where you bring people together, and um, she's a friend of a friend, and we, she was really fascinated that I was a pastor, She's not a person of faith, but I vividly remember, she said, the one thing about the church that makes sense to me is the table. There's something powerful about coming around table, and so I'm doing that without, all, as she would say, without the baggage of God and all that, right? Um, but that there's, like, that really was, she was taking the power of table that she had experienced in the church into the world in these really transformative ways, and so I think that that's... There's something to that. Yeah, very much so. Kyle? I think I'll add this question. But I was just thinking, in a really practical way, how do we practice this hospitality in the way that we structure our community and make make it so that as many people can feel welcome as possible in our community without losing who we are. And that's really the challenge, right? Is that a lot of people feel comfortable maybe walking into a mega church or something like that because there's kind of it's in some ways it's it's sort of um, strategically formatted to be, you know, pleasing to as many people as possible. But in way in its way in some ways it's very different from that. We even had we even had a friend come visit and was coming to church, walked in, got so intimidated by how intimate it was, and like walked out, drove from DC. I didn't even get to meet him, you know. So anyway, yeah, it's true. Even how how do we talk about um, could somebody who voted for Trump yeah. come to a Sunday night here and feel comfortable? We feel comfortable, and I'm not saying that we should necessarily. So that's why I don't have any answers, but I, it strikes me that you know, in some ways this is a 
hardest vow to keep because you know if they say Sunday is the most segregated day of the week and, and it's segregated not, in terms, not just in terms of race but in, in all sorts of you know ways of partitioning ourselves and um, so that's all. It's true. It's kind of how. What do we mean by open? And how? What are we willing to change about ourselves to be more open and hospitable to other people without mm -hmm. losing the, the core? Mm -hmm. A good question. I do not have an answer. But yeah, it's a very good question. Anybody on this side? <laughs> trying to rotate? I know, as I'm like trying to swivel and not fall. Um, yeah, no, and I do think I do think that that's a really good point, Kyle. And I've been thinking a lot of um, with yeah, and I think especially with openness and what does it mean to be open. And I think um, recognizing that you can't be all things for all people, right? Um, and and I think that as long as we, I don't know, I guess my thought on openness is that as long as in being open, we are open to most fully or like have space to be open for those who are disenfranchised, oppressed, right? Kind of these, the people on the margins. I think that I at least like am geared to be more open that way. But I also recognize that that means there might be other people that don't feel like this is a space for them. And I'm wrestling with, like, personally wrestling with that right now, right? Um, but I've been thinking about, sorry, back to SK's comment of, um, we don't just come around this open table, right? We come, out, we come around multiple tables in our lives week after week, and part of this open table, and part of Emmaus Way, and the breaking of bread, like, they weren't, <laughs> they were just at a friend's house in Emmaus. And so, I think a question I've been thinking about, and back to Brian, is who am I inviting over, or what tables am I going to outside of Sunday to start building relationship? Because um, if I'm being completely honest, I probably will have more honest, heartfelt conversation or start to see them more as human through multiple meals happening outside of Sunday than I might hear at church for an hour and a half. And that doesn't answer your question, but it's at least like, I'm headed to Tennessee, my hometown, for 10 days in October this month. I'm a little excited, but um, I have a list of people that I'm going to do dinner or coffee with who I know we blatantly disagree about most things now. But recognizing that I kind of left them, right? Like in the dust in my, uh, whatever you, in my journey. In my meteoric rise. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, exactly. But, um, but yeah, but that I need to have I need to sit around table with them. And they may never come to Emmaus Way, or if they did, they probably would be uncomfortable. Um, but that I can, I've got to figure out how to be in relationship with those people, both inside and outside this space. Yes, one more, and then, 
Yeah, I got it. I'm still standing here. Yeah, so like, what so that vow encapsulates this like that hospitality is reflected in it. Yeah. That was actually not about the open table, it's like the values that reflect in what Jesus did and the kind of relationship became like the other and he served and he sacrificed and like that's what you're carrying in this year. That's what you yeah. carry in your work spirit or in your relationship. Very much so. Yeah, it's having, it's like not having fear to have a meal with or to sit down with someone. Like what is that you're, yeah, that you're afraid of. Whatever that fear might look like or be. Um, because I think it is, right? Like I think it's in those, it's in the crack of relationship and relationality where this, the light can get in. And I think that that takes work but work that we are committed to do. So I hope you all will come back um, next week for Ecclesia, but also the kind of weeks ending, rounding out October. Um, we are hoping to do, just have some really intentional conversation about, okay, here's this roadmap as Joel talked about, and here's, um, what are some practical things as a community that we want to do? How do we want to engage um, on a more practical level? these vows um, in our lives and in Durham. So hope you'll come back for those conversations. But Tim Carlos, lead us in confession and action. Um, again, I, I, I feel, I, I just like to say I'm very grateful to be asked to come back here again. I enjoy being here and singing. Uh, this is a song, I, I, I'm, I, the next song I'm gonna play for you is something that I wrote um, a, a short while ago. And it's sort of fitting with the dialogue you've been having today in as much as it's about wanting to have, um, a connect, wanting to connect with people and, and, and would rather have an uncomfortable exchange than uh, a meaningless just a surface um, communication. So it's called Give Me Heaven.
speechless gestures of the best of time. You know you're really off the mark. That point of view is so confined, but I'm not to go. Uh, this song I don't think needs any introduction or any explanation of its uh, lyrical agenda. Again, thanks very much for having me here. This is a, a Curtis Mayfield song. It's called People Get Ready. Coast to coast 
Faith is the key Open the doors and board them There's room for all among those love and lovers There ain't no room for the hopeless sinner who would hurt all mankind just to save his own. Have pity on those whose chances are thinner, cause there's no hiding place in the kingdom's throne. There's a train coming You don't need no baggage You just climb aboard All you need is faith to hear This diesel's humming You don't need no ticket You just thank the Lord People get ready There's a train that's coming don't need no baggage, you just get on board. All you need is faith to hear those diesels humming. You don't need no ticket, you just thank the Mr. Tim Carlos, thank you. So, a lot of good questions tonight. Where's your Emmaus? Not Emmaus way. I hope you can find, you've all found that one. Yeah, where's our Emmaus? Where's the thing we're busy getting to or doing, right? Where's the thing that gets cracked? And then we go, who's doing that? You don't crack my thing. So where's our Emmaus? Where are we cracked? I'll share a story. I, I got a couple. And, and they all sort of coincided for me this week. Thursday night, Molly mentioned Tequila Smith, who was 36, year old, 36 years old, has five children at the age of 20, um, had lived in the Southside neighborhood, which I also recently occupy uh, most of her life, moved away, my understanding is, fairly recently because uh, a builder bought and sold her home out from under her, so she had to find a different neighborhood uh, and a means of transportation and a new job and a lot of other things that went did that. But she did that, uh, was working pretty, pretty actively with Bull City United, who does violence prevention work in that neighborhood, working with uh, sort of gang-affiliated folks, previously gang-affiliated folks who are doing work to try and um, sort of stop violence before it starts. And she was a friend of many of those people and was working alongside them to try and help them build inroads in the community. A community in Southside that really, I mean, there's, there's, there's been some folks killed up in there through the years. Uh, long before I moved in, uh, with the help of the city, 
to a lovely home, which is now worth roughly 50% more than I paid for it, um, and I could not now afford. Uh, but so I walked to this vigil as the uh, executive director of Religious Coalition. I walked up the hill. It took me all of four minutes to walk to this neighborhood. As I was walking, I noticed several new homes that were not there uh, and built, which sell for, you know, about what my home sells for and a ridiculous amount that a home in that neighborhood sells for. Certainly more than most of the people who attended the vigil would ever imagine being able to afford. And so I am there with one of 10 or 12 other white folks uh, and a crowd of Southside, right? Folks that I do not know, even though I am four minutes from my house, I would say 100 to 200 um, community folks. I felt, in, in, a, in a good way, as I sometimes feel, very, very white. And uh, the Religious Coalition was part of organizing the vigil. It was not our vigil, but we were involved. We had some folks speaking. I was not one of those folks. I sat there and listened to these, um, these daughters talk about their mother and a grandmother, talk about her granddaughter um, who, who she'd buried. And I felt so irrelevant. As the director of the thing that helped organize the thing, I was so irrelevant in that space. There is nothing in terms of solution that I had to offer. And I don't think that's a bad way to feel. I think that was just accurate. And so I felt incredibly cracked in that. And I think part of it was, is you recognize when you get that sense of your own irrelevance, you're like, oh, right. Like, I have set myself up to be irrelevant in this space because I'm preoccupied. I, have, I work in terms of solutions. I have solutions for the life I live that make sense to me. And I assume that those should apply everywhere. And if they're not working for you, well, I, you know, I mean, these are what solutions look like. And so, yeah, it has a sense of paralysis. And really, it's the kind of thing you go away and say, like, isn't there something more than this talking of the weather? I mean, what is this intellectual artifice all about? Like, th there should be something we're doing or talking about. There should be something about this crackedness that's been pointed out to me that I can do. So how do the cracks find us? Well, that's how the cracks found me in that space. And you know, that's, I, I found those cracks because I went there, because it's the work I do. Sometimes we find the cracks when we go looking for them. But I think also, sometimes we say that the cracks are the place to live. That's how you find them. And you say, you know what, I'm gonna live in the cracks. I think many of us have made that decision in different ways. Um, by crossing streets we shouldn't cross, by doing work that's not exactly as gameful as what we could be doing. There's, there's all sorts of ways we're doing this, but where are we looking for the cracks? And, and when you decide to live in the cracks, how do you do that? And I think for us in talking about this table tonight, I think maybe the answer is we just get on the frickin' train. I mean, the trains are coming. You don't need no baggage. You just get on board. So all you need is faith to hear the diesels humming. And, and we sometimes, I feel, I sometimes, I would be rather be run over by the train than get on board the thing. But I think that the, we doing this table week after week, I think one thing we're saying to each other is, it's the train. Why don't we get on the train? Rather than get run over by this train, we know what's wrong. We know what could be better. Let's not get run over. Let's just get on that train and follow it where it goes this week. What, what? If I got on this train, where might it take me? 
in this relation, and we don't have to go far, where might it take me in this community? Where is someone sitting in this room right now whose story I know very little of, but could reach out to and develop community with and get a different perspective of the world? Where, to Brian's point, where are the relationships that could change people's moral reasoning? Where are the relationships that could change our moral reasoning? Where are the places we can be uncomfortable? Where are the places where someone's trying to give us something and we just don't, we aren't ready to receive it. I think we come to this table every week and the train is here. And sometimes I, I would rather be run over than just get on the train. But I think that's why we do this. Because there's something here that is powerful and prophetic and it's sweeping through all time. And when we catch a glimpse of it and just join it, then it starts to give us a sense of what could be different and how we might be implicated in that, and how we might be holding it back, and how we might could move it forward. So that's where I feel cracked this week. And that's, what I'm, that's one of the reasons I'm grateful for this community, because when I find myself in those cracked spaces, I have this table to reshape my imagination, what it might look like to live and learn and be and love in those cracked spaces. I, I, think, I think that's why we do this. And that's the table we're inviting you to tonight. So I invite you to come around this table, pour wine and juice for each other, give bread and gluten-free cracker um, as appropriate to each other, and start to imagine together, this week, every week, take it out with you, where are we being invited to get on the train? And where might it take us? Welcome to the table.